Hello, I'm Mark Foden. Welcome to The Clock and the Cat, a podcast of conversations about complexity. The Clock and the Cat explores the emerging science of complexity, ultimately to help you generate better ideas and make better decisions, whatever you're involved with. This is episode four, and I'm going to be talking with Roland Coopers about how you can learn about complexity. But before that, if this is your first experience of The Clock and the Cat and you don't know what it's about, please do go back and listen to episode one for a seven minute no faffing about introduction to the podcast. If you did go away, welcome back. Here I am with Roland Coopers. Roland is an independent advisor on complexity, resilience and energy transition. He's Dutch and speaks four other languages fluently. Originally a theoretical physicist, he's worked in business management in AT&T, then in Shell where he held several senior positions. He's written books on scenario planning, resilience and complexity in the context of public policy. And he's brewing another one on climate change at the moment. We've worked together on several projects, mostly to do with resilience. And in fact, we co-hatched the idea of the clock and the cat a couple of years ago. Roland's been teaching complexity at all levels, from children to chief executives for many years. And I'm sure you'll find what he has to say really useful. Roland, welcome. Thanks very much for joining us. Hi, Mark. Good to be back. Today, in this episode, we're going to talk about how to learn about complexity. If you heard episode three, then Roland and I were talking about what complexity actually was. So if you're interested in more detail, then you go back to um, episode three. But this is for people who are interested in knowing more about complexity and so I thought what I'd do, Roland, is could, could we just start off by talking about the maturity of the, the science of complexity? Because it's comparatively new, isn't it? Yes and no, <laughs> like most questions. You know, every decent thinker probably since the 18th century knew about complexity and actually has made footnotes of one kind of another saying, well, actually, you know, with this reductionist thing really is a bit of a shortcut and we should look at the complexity and you know there's a wonderful paper from the 30s from Hayek about the complexity of economics and it has quite a quite deep and long roots and if you go back to the ancient Greeks there's all sorts of stuff you can find uh, but as a western scientific discipline it's 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 a couple of decades maybe three decades old that it's that it's really entrenched itself in our in our academic environments now, the question of maturity is one is hard to answer, right, is, you know, how mature is economics? You know, how mature is genetics? How mature is theoretical physics, right? I mean, these things, you know, it, it assumes, you know, some sort of having cracked the problem. And I, I think for all of those sciences, you can say that they haven't. Um, and the same is true for complexity science. It hasn't cracked complexity, but neither has economics cracked the economy. But there's enough really fascinating stuff that we typically haven't learned about as part of our education. So I think that's the first thing. So there's a lot of intellectual running room there, which is really fascinating stuff. The, the other thing is that to say that we don't know about enough about complex systems, so we'll just assume they're not complex, is completely wrong. <laughs> so... So that that is is not an excuse, and it and it, it sounds funny, but it's one you know I've heard particularly about economics. Actually, people say is you know complexity economics isn't mature enough, so we'll just use the standard economic models. 
except that we know that the economy is a complex system and that the standard economic models, certainly the macroeconomic models, assume it's not. And so that's just not okay. Right? So what's the extent of teaching? Let, let, let's start with universities, for example. And what's the, what's the extent of teaching about um, uh, complexity in universities? I'm, I'm sure it's pretty variable, but um, what, what's your sense of that? Yeah, it's, it's present in every university and, and actually, interestingly enough, in every discipline at PhD and postdoc level everywhere. And it's only starting to make its way into master's and bachelor's programs. And there it varies greatly because it, it literally changes year by year. So we're at the cusp of it infiltrating much more deeply into, into bachelor and master. But it, at universities, it's present everywhere. And, and it serves, I think that's really a, a fast, and what, for example, the institute I'm at in Amsterdam, the Institute for Advanced Studies, which is really the complexity institute of the University of Amsterdam, it, is that you have people from different disciplines who share a language and an approach to problems, which is immensely enriching. So I've witnessed conversations of people who are trying to model the origin of life and others who are trying to model the human immune system with people who are trying to model the economy and, and they actually learn from each other about how you capture the dynamic of those systems and they share tools and insights and tricks, etc. So in that sense, then maybe complexity is a bit like mathematics in the sense of its um, general use. Um, could we think of it? Could we just, think of it that way? Yeah, I would somehow. <laughs> As a formal theoretical physicist, I would I would always give mathematics a more uh, I would always think of mathematics more like music, right? It's kind of a, a really fundamental description of of an abstract space. So, um, in some sense, but I think in in a way, you know, complexity also uses mathematics. So I think they're at a, a really at a different level. So. Yeah, but it, I, it's an interesting idea that it's applicable in lots of disciplines. That that was the only kind of uh, yeah, the, but the, 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 the driver the, the, for saying that. You know? Yeah, the parallel in some ways is it's comparable to reductionism, right? Redu reductionism is an approach that's used across most sciences. It's just it's become so routine that we never name it. But but actually, it's a shared methodology. Um, so, so that may be the best comparison. So that is an interesting insight. Go, go, going back to the uh, formal learning about complexity. Now, you actually teach complexity, don't you? So can you just talk about what you do and how that happens and the kind of things you talk about? Yeah, so I'm a little bit unusual in the sense that because of my experience in, in business and policy, I teach uh, complexity to, to those people because I speak their language. Um, there are also people who teach highly technical and, and much more learned than I am classes on, you know, network mathematics or, or modeling, etc. Um, and, and that's another part of, of teaching complexity. But what I'm particularly interested in is creating that bridge with practitioners. And the trick there is to is not to turn into into you know, a consulting gimmick or something with some frame that is described by four words that happen to start with the same letter or something like that. Um, <laughs> Guilty as charged, Your Honor, by the way. So. <laughs> yes. But so, so what I try to distinguish is complexity science and a complexity frame is that for policymakers and, and managers and people in organizations, I think understanding complex systems and framing particular problems 
through through these concepts of complexity in itself has huge value because you talk about and you do justice to the underlying dynamic of the thing you're trying to deal with. And a next step would be to say, okay, is there some scientific methods we can apply to this and do some modeling, etc. And that may or may not be the case because the world is immensely complex. But just talking and using the right words and language and concepts and being aware of those uh, makes a, in my experience, makes a huge difference to the way we tackle problems. Speaking practically, then, um, if someone had been listening to episode three or was listening to this episode about um, learning about complexity, what do they do next? For example, could you recommend a book or several books or whatever that people could pick up and learn about complexity? Yes, well, the the absolute best way is to read my books, of course. But <laughs> no, but uh, which will be no, the, well, Roland's books uh, will be listed in the show notes, so you can yes. uh, so you can look at those. But there are but there are people who are much more eloquent than I am, I'm sure. But the the um, I, I think everyone has their own journey through these. There are a couple of books that that in my early engagement with complexity were very useful for me, and in particular. There's a book by Wardrop called Complexity, and he was a scientific journalist who was invited to witness the early days of complexity science and, and writes really well about it, including a bit of human interest, etc., which gives you a sense of what, the, what questions people had when they started on this journey and to what were they thinking about, what were they worried about. And I think that gives, at least they gave me a huge amount of insight into, into why this is important. Uh, more philosophical, there's one of the foremost physicists of the 20th century, Murray Gell-Mann, an, an amazing uh, educator, uh, wrote a book called The Quark and the Jaguar. Gell-Mann um, was the guy who discovered the quark. Yes, and and named it because he and was a great it. he was a great fan of Finnegan's Wake and uh, oh is that where uh, it comes from? That's where the quark comes from. Yes, um, um, he's probably one of the few people who managed to make it through that book. But um, um, so so those those are are um, are very good. But it, it, there are a lot uh, there there are a lot that get published and some will work for one or for one person and not for another. Um, I found that it's with all profound insights is that at some point you get a phase transition in your head. And, and in fact, uh, um, I've spoken to quite a few people who are interested in complexity and most of them can name a time and a place where the coin dropped for them. And they said, oh, okay, I understand why this is important. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they've been magically enlightened or something, but you know, actually, and then there are a million other questions that follow from there. It's not that you're happy, happy ever after. So you have to soak in in, in these things and, and read a number of, of books on that. And one thing will work for one person and the other for another. No, that's, inter I'm, I th that's interesting because I, I think a lot of learning happens that way. I just leaping into my head is when I was learning about matrix mathematics. I remember struggling with it for quite a long time and really not understanding it left it for a few months and then came back to it. Suddenly the penny dropped and it all worked. And yeah. so being confused by something and struggling with it is okay. 
Yes, and because as far as we know, uh, learning is a complex process. Yeah. And it literally is a phase transition when you gain a new insight. And so these things are, 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 aren't just an image. They're, they're actually quite, quite literally relevant. So are there any particular gurus that you would point at? Um, Apart from your good self, of course. No, well, I, I wouldn't put myself on that list. No, I don't think so. I mean, you know, the early, I, you know, Gelman possibly. I mean, there are a couple of, uh, um, uh, of the, you know, the founders. The, the whole thing started in the late 80s at the Santa Fe Institute. So the, the early people who were there, there's somebody called Brian Arthur, who's an economist who was spearheaded complexity economics, which is, you know, still struggling. And so in, in, because it goes across so many disciplines, you've got somebody we both know, Stephen Lansing, here at the Complexity Institute in, in Singapore, who's an anthropologist, so again, has a very different story. So you, you get people in all these different disciplines, and they bring their own flavor, which, which, you know, eliminates a little bit the guru thing, because you have people in, associated with all these various disciplines which, who, who bring different things. So one book I'm reading at the moment, um, and I've forgotten the title, but I'll put it in the show notes, is um, Ralph Stacey's book about strategic management. And he does a sort of run through all of the main stages of management thinking, starting back at sort of scientific management post the industrial era, all the way through the, the, the learning organization and eventually ending up at the sort of ideas of complexity. And I'm thinking that's a really good book if you want to put in context the management teaching over the past sort of 30 years you've read his stuff haven't you well some of his papers and not that particular book but yes he's he's great i mean in some sense you know the very idea of a guru in a sense is a reductionist concept right the the same brian arthur wrote this absolutely wonderful book called what is technology which is about innovation and he tries to get to the heart of what innovation really is, and he looks at it as a, as a, and it basically describes it as it's the rec- there are no new ideas. Is that innovation is the recombination of existing ideas, and then recognizing which ones are important and work. And it's a little bit like the story we we had in the previous episode about decisions. Is that the person who's the guru who grabs the or who grabs the Nobel Prize is often the person who names it and who recognizes it. And y- yes, you know they they certainly have done their share of thinking. But the way we talk about gurus and inventors, etc., is we we project the entire process that that happens before onto one individual and give him or her the entire credit. And inevitably, you know, they all come up with these images, slightly embarrassed and say, no, but I've, sta- I've stood on the shoulder of giants and all these kinds of things, because they actually know that it's not them. It's, it's, it, there's a whole network before them, and they've just, you know, added the, um, the, the catalyst at the end to, to get it across the finishing line. So that, that's very interesting. I did listen to a podcast a, a couple of months ago where there was an eminent person who was talking about how you actually become that person from, uh, from amongst your peers, <laughs> which I just thought was, well, just a bit odd, really. But hey. well, There are people who are, who are outstanding educators, for example, and, and that's a really important function, right? Some people <laughs> explain better than others and get more credit. 
um, and and all those those things are are important. But the the very strong emphasis we have on you know the the you know the hero CEO or the inventor or the Nobel Prize winner, I think again is misleading, particularly for young people. I remember when I was a very long time when I was young, I I also found those things confusing because you think, well, how do I ever become that? And actually, you don't. The point is is teamwork and collaborating and, and making the whole better. And yes, sometimes you happen to stumble into a position where, you know, people assign some credit for that to you. But more often than not, it's not deserved. It's a much broader, broader phenomenon. Absolutely. So, just summarising where we've got to. So we've um, we talked about some people that people could look out for, and we talked about some books. So there's a complexity book by uh, Wardrop and the Cork and the Jagger by Murray Gell-Mann. So what about courses? Can can you talk about if you wanted to do a, an online course or something? Um, and what would you do? Yeah, there's actually quite a lot of really fantastic stuff. There's a um, there's a thing called the Complexity Explorer that that has all sorts of online courses and and material that you can look at. There's a thing called the Complexity Digest, which is a an overview in a very succinct way of what gets published across various disciplines on complexity. And uh, I find that incredibly valuable because sort of, you know, you get once a week a download with a few lines on on various research papers. And kind of from the corner of your eye, you could see the kind of things that people are working on. And you pick out interesting stuff and it gives you a sense of, of, uh, of what's going on everywhere. Um, the complexity- and there are also... Sorry, Roland, the, the complexity yeah. digesting. I I do follow that on Facebook, but I do find it quite technical. If I was new to the um, completely new to the field, then um, I probably wouldn't pay a, a lot of attention to it because it, it, it you know there's a lot of very deep stuff in it. I mean, is there a more kind of general, higher level thing that? Folks yeah, there are. At. I mean, there there are there are MOOCs. Uh, the Santa Fe Institute has got an introductory course, and a, a number of universities. I mean, it's literally spreading quickly. Um, there's the course you went to at uh, here, the Complex Institute in in Singapore, and well, that looks an an awfully long way away. It's actually. You know, rather comfortable to spend a week. Well, well, no. I mean, my, my experience in I spent a week in Singapore in March, and I did the uh, short. Well, they call it the winter course in complexity, yeah. which uh, runs at the NTU, which is the National Technical University. Is that right? Is that where you are, Roland? Yes, Nanyang Technical. Nanyang, University. Yeah, yeah, right, Na, uh, Nanyang, and that was uh, that, that was excellent because there were about forty of us on the course. Very interestingly, half of the people were Singaporean civil servants who were learning about complexity, uh, which I thought was 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 absolutely fabulous. And then all sorts of people, a contingent from uh, a university in Amsterdam, and. Um, people from all over the world, absolutely, absolutely fascinating, coming together to do to to cover all uh, you know the full range of complexity techniques, and uh, yeah. it was all technical complexity ideas. That was really really brilliant. Okay, yeah. so there's some there's some short courses you can do. I, I mean, I know there's um, a summer course at Santa Fe, isn't there? But that's yes. four weeks long, so that takes quite a long time. You can do a week week in Singapore, and there are and lots of other courses like this popping up everywhere. 
Yes, there are. Uh, there are a couple of main hubs, though. I mean, the you know Santa Fe, Singapore, the the Amsterdam Institute, and there's a there's a um, there's quite an important complexity hub in Vienna as well. So there, it's you know you're starting to see a couple of them. But on the other hand, for a general introduction, you really don't need endless depth, right? You just need somebody who's a really good a good teacher and, and, and gives you an exciting program. And you should be able to find that relatively close by and certainly online or all sorts of things. Um, but again, a, don't expect the coin to drop in one go, right? It, this is unpredictable. You may be on the first day, you think, aha, now I understand. Or at the, maybe at the end of the week, you're still confused at a higher level. <laughs> You've been involved in uh, creating a curriculum for the International Baccalaureate. Yes. I mean, one of the things that I always found curious is this this thing that, you know, you could go through high school and a bachelor's degree and a master's degree and never encounter complexity. And then you'd sign up for a PhD program and people would say, actually, um, things are a little bit different. Maybe you should look at it this way which is really weird because it's so fundamental. So uh, I was always intrigued by, by thinking whether you could make a program for school kids and see whether that would work. And so I worked together with the International Baccalaureate, who have a number of advantages. It's taught at 5,000 schools around the world. About half of them are public and half of them are private schools. Um, however you use those terms, realizing that in the UK and the rest of the world, they mean something different. And... We, we wrote a 14-hour curriculum together with a, with a um, wonderful German young scientist and taught that twice um, and then did an evaluation with the students, etc. And, and it was great. Students just loved it. It's, as ever, you know, kids are much better learners than adults. And um, in a sense, they were thrilled, I think, because... It did justice to their intuition about the world, you know, their world of social media and gender ambiguity and all sorts of things that kids at that age wrestle with, you know, is deeply not reductionist. And here you had a class that that actually allowed them to see those things. And, you know, many of them got really excited. They said, oh, you know, this is really, you know, I, I now we'll see, I see all sorts of connections that I hadn't seen before. And so it was really great. And so I hope that the IB rolls it out further. And, you know, the IB itself, as any large organization, is also a complex adaptive system and has its change issues of its own. Um, so it, these things are not easy. But but it was exciting to do and, and also to see that that this is, 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 is really possible and, and uh, really welcome. Yeah, so I, I read the curriculum, the IB curriculum that you've done, and I thought it was quite instructive in itself, what what was actually included with it. And actually, some of the exercises that were in there were really interesting, too. Um, so do, do you think the kids that you've taught it to, does the penny drop straight away? Or you, you say this, it comes more naturally to them? Yes. And in fact, the irony is I spoke to a lot of teachers in the course of developing this program and, and all the primary school teachers were sublimely uninterested. And at some point, I really wondered why. And, and I, I talked to a number of them from around the world and they all said, but this is what we do. Um, we, we, you know, at primary school level, we teach systems thinking to kids. That's all we do. And, and because kids are natural systems thinkers. They said, well, 
so then what happens? And and then they said, well, we just hand them off to secondary school and it gets beaten out of them. <laughs> that's literally how, and it wasn't one teacher, many of them framed schooling. <laughs> um, so, which I found really interesting and, you know, that may or may not be true, but it's, it's, it, it is clear that, you know, small kids have an enormous aptitude for, for thinking in terms of systems. And if you get to them early enough, I think in early high school, <laughs> they've not been ruined by reductionism yet. Okay, so I'm going to interpret that as great hope for the future. Look, Roland, thank you very much. Once more, thank you very much indeed for uh, spending the time to talk about how to learn about complexity. And so that's it. Before we finish, if you found what you heard interesting, please do subscribe. And there are more interesting people lined up to talk to in the next few months. And also, can I give you the very important job of spreading the word cause it might help someone else. And please do it right now before you forget. Message, email, tweet, Slack or otherwise let your mates know about the clock and the cat. Thank you very much indeed. Hope you listen again. Bye bye.